If you're not already there, join me in John chapter five. The rest of John chapter five is going to move us into what I would say is an impromptu, impromptu courtroom setting. And so using that courtroom imagery, Jesus up to this point in time has basically been giving his opening argument. This is what we've been reading about in John chapter five. But now he's going to present his airtight defense. And what do you typically do? What do lawyers do when they're presenting their airtight defense? They start calling witnesses. Okay. And the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to be calling witnesses. In fact, when we get to this section of the book of John, it's really telling. You'll notice this in your own Bibles, even in the English, but the, the noun and the verb form of witness or testify or testimony, those kind of things, it's going to be used 11 times in this section. So you can, you're going to see this focus going down. This, these, he's calling these witnesses to, to his identity. Now in Jewish law, valid testimony required how many witnesses? Those of you that know your Old Testament, I think you'll, you'll know two to three. Two to three witnesses. Jesus is going to provide four. Okay, so this is an overabundance of testimony, and he's going to provide five if you count himself, but he knows that's not legal, valid testimony, right? Because we all shade, we had this tendency, most of us, Jesus didn't, but most of us shade the truth toward our side. So he realizes that's not a valid testimony, but he does give five witnesses, including himself, but he's going to give four. And so we're going to consider those over the next two weeks. And in verse 31, we're going to, we're going to get the first witness. It's Jesus himself, which again, legally from a legal perspective, it would have been the weakest witness of the bunch for that very reason. And he's going to acknowledge that. And we'll see this in verse 31. So let's read verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And so Jesus uses this third class condition of the Greek. If basically assuming uncertain fulfillment, but still likely. It's a way of kind of introducing an argument without being dogmatic. Now, Jesus, of course, did give witness to himself. He's not providing just a hypothetical here, but what he's doing is he's introducing really this next phrase, this latter phrase that he's going to talk about where his witness is not true. Basically, Jesus is saying, if I were to ever bear witness of myself, which we know that he did, he was clearly doing it in John 5, but he's just saying he recognizes this isn't going to be the strongest piece of evidence for his audience, okay? So this is how he kind of introduces this. Now, to define this word, especially the verb here, bear witness, it means exactly what you think, to be able or ready to testify. This would have been somebody that testified of the truth of what they had seen, what they had heard, and what they had known, okay? Just like you would think in any court case, this is exactly how it's used throughout the passage. And so this was a judicial or legal term. And as I mentioned before in the Mosaic Law, serious legal cases required two to three of these. You couldn't just go down the street and, you, and your neighbor doesn't like you because you blew a couple of you know grass sheds on his lawn. And he's gonna go, I saw that guy murder somebody. Okay, well, if you saw him, throw him in jail. No, it would require two or three witnesses in a, in a serious legal case. And this is why Deuteronomy 19, 15 says, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits by the mouth or t- of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And so what's interesting here is because Jesus is building a legal argument, he's an impromptu kind of court case, if you will, calling witnesses, he's going to recognize that his testimony about himself is simply not legally convincing. That's what he's saying here. This is why he says what he does here. My witness is not true. It's not that Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, everything I've been saying, I've been lying. That's not what he's saying at all. I think what he's saying is this, it's not valid legal testimony because people slant evidence toward themselves. And quite frankly, if you just look at your own life, we all do this. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody and, and you've recounted that argument with somebody else with a third party? We always have a tendency to slant it toward the betterment of ourselves. We always have a tendency to interpret the facts that support our view, right? It's never that we were wrong. It's always that they were wrong. It's always that they were foolish. It's always that they weren't listening. It's always they don't get it, right? It's always somebody else's fault. It's never ours. We, we have this tendency to slant it. Jesus is recognizing that that is how they would view most people. You would just, and that's exactly what happens in court cases, right? Uh, in fact, defendants lie all the time. No, I didn't kill him. Oh, but the, the glove fit, your DNA is on the knife, 
400 people saw you coming out of the room. Yep, but I didn't do it. You know, and they slant the evidence. They try to. So Jesus is just saying, hey, I know you, you're not going to take my testimony alone. It's kind of the gist of what he's saying. Now, <clears throat> later in John 8, 14, Jesus, uh, just to prove that he's not saying that he's lying here. In John 8, 14, he says, my testimony is true. He can say, I am telling the truth. I just realize you don't believe me or this is not legally convincing. And so what he's going to do is he's going to try to give them an overabundance of witnesses, an overabundance of testimonies so that they'll be convinced. And I believe in verse 32, the first person he calls to the witness stand is God the Father. Now he's been talking about God the Father all this time. He's been kind of basically describing their unity, not only in purpose and mission and words and deeds, but now he's going to basically call him to the witness stand. And what he's going to say is, is simply this. He's going to say, and it, in fact, let me just walk us through the passage real quick. Verse 32, I believe, and we'll, we'll talk about the debate there. What he's going to say is, God the Father testifies to me, and that should be enough. But since you can't see God the Father testifying me, I'm going to give you a human witness that also testified of me. But then you're going to say that you can't trust just human witnesses alone. So then he's going to circle back and give three divine witnesses, his miracles, God the Father again, and then also the, the written word of God from the Old Testament. That's kind of how the flow of this conversation is going. Jesus is going to recognize that every witness he gives them, they're going to have a, an excuse for not believing. And so he just kind of cycles through, and I believe the, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, which we'll get to next week, are is that's the expert witness. That's when the defense rests, because they should have at least believed the Old Testament. There's nothing subjective about that. It was all objective. They could have seen it. And so this is kind of the flow of where he's going to go. So first, I think what he's going to say is like, really, I only need one witness. And what he witnesses is true. And if you guys believe that God the Father was testifying of my identity, that should be enough. That's kind of the idea, I think, that we're going in in verse 32. But there is some a little bit of a debate here with verse 32 as to who he's talking about. So let's read it, and then let's talk about the options. There's another who bears witness of me, another besides myself. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. And so the question becomes is who is this other? Who is this another that he refers to? Well, can you already tell in your Bibles who the translators think it is? Because what do they do with the, with the pronoun he? They capitalize it. So they're already, they're already assuming it's God the Father. I would agree with them, but let me tell you, let me tell you why. The other potential option is John the Baptist. Now, why is that? Because verses 32 through 35 go through John the Baptist. So it's, it seems to fit contextually. And that's why a lot of people say, no, I think he's talking about John the Baptist here. But one of the things that you'll see as we go forward with John the Baptist and Jesus's argument is in verse 32, this one here, he says, I know the witness which he witnesses of me is true. But then in verse 34, in describing John the Baptist, he says, yet I do not receive testimony from man. So those seem like he's, those comments are distinguishing the witness in verse 32 with John the Baptist's witness. That's how I would kind of see it. And so again, the flow seems to be, I know for certain that this, this one is true, this witness, God the Father, but I know you can't see that, so I'll give you a man's testimony, John the Baptist, but I know some men's testimony is not trustworthy, so let me give you three more divine witnesses. This is kind of the flow of what we're going to look at this morning. And so that was one option. I actually picked this option. I, I actually agree with the translators here. I think the capitalization of he is referring to God the Father. Now, that would be a, a fun discussion. So if you disagree, we can talk. That'd be uh, fun to chat. It's not a hill I want to die on, per se. Um, but I think, it's, but I think there, it makes sense that, that they capitalized and they took it as God the Father. In fact, uh, this option also continues what we've seen in Jesus' monologue up to this point. It's been all about him and his relationship to the Father, this unity of purpose, mission, words, and actions. And so the completed thought from verses 31 through 32 is the way I see it is, I know you won't view my own testimony as valid, but you should view God the Father's testimony as valid. And quite frankly, when God the Father is one of your witnesses, what need do you have of any other witnesses, right? Conceptually, that's going to be a perception thing. They're not going to agree with Jesus that God the Father is testifying of him or that he, that God the Father even agrees with him. In fact, what do they think Jesus is? They think he's a big, fat, dirty, rotten sinner. 
I mean, that's what they think of him right now. They're not going to say God the Father is testifying of you. They won't agree with that. But conceptually, this is what Jesus is saying. You don't trust me. You should trust God the Father because his witness or his testimony is true. In fact, Jesus says, I know it's true. Perfect tense, meaning a completed action in the past with ongoing results in the present. The word itself describes intuitive knowledge. In other words, Jesus didn't have to figure this out over a process of time. He just knew it intuitively that God the Father's testimony of him was true. And so he has no doubt that, the, that his testimony is true, not only because of the valid legal testimony, but because of the source itself. So the idea here really is that Jesus really shouldn't even have to call any other witnesses. Just should, this should be over. But again, they're not taking the validity of what he's saying here. And so he's going to come back to this line of thought. He's going to take a, a, a quick left because I think he's trying to meet the needs of the Jewish religious leaders. They're not going to just accept some guy walking in saying, oh, yeah, God, the father's on my side. Oh, OK, if you say, God, the father's on your side, then we'll, we'll accept you. So he goes to another human witness before he comes back to God, the father. We'll see later this morning. This is kind of where we'll cl- conclude the message this morning. But the question is, where does he go next? Well, he goes to John the Baptist. The question is, why does he go to John the Baptist? Well, again, he, he's going to cite a human witness and he's going to cite a human witness that this group initially received. They initially received his ministry. They were intrigued by his ministry. And Jesus is kind of, kind of review that with them here as we go forward in verses 33 through 35. So verse 33 says this, you have sent to John and he is born witness to the truth. Now, if you recall, we, we know when they sent to John. We know that when they reached out to John, because we have it recorded in John chapter 1. We've already been through this uh, weeks ago. But John chapter 1, 19 through 27, if you remember, they, they interrogated John as to his identity. Remember, they asked him first, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he said, no. And are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. And when he got through, when they got through this Orthodox list and and then basically said, well, who do you think you are then? (laughs) Why are you baptizing people? Who gave you that authority? Why do you think you can baptize, especially Jews? It made sense that they could baptize Gentiles into the Jewish religion, but why would you baptize a Jew? They didn't, they didn't get that. So they were interrogating John. You remember that? And it was here that John bore witness of Jesus Christ in his identity. It's our same word that we're going to see again 11 times in this passage. It's also used in the perfect tense. I'm going to keep bringing that out because it indicates that he did something, a completed action in the past with ongoing results. What that means is that John made a, a declaration of testimony about the identity of Christ and he continued to do so. Or his testimony remained, if you will. In other words, he never changed his mind. It's kind of the idea that, that you could bring out of that. And so when was John's first public testimony of Jesus Christ? It's recorded in John chapter 1. Again, it's a, it's a passage that uh, we've gone over before. But he told the religious contingent there in verses 26 through 27, There stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. And so he's declaring this testimony. But you say, well, he doesn't actually mention who it is there. Well, interestingly enough, the very next day he does. And as Jesus Christ is coming toward him, he says what? Remember the verse in John 1, 29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Had John borne witness to the identity of Jesus Christ? You better believe it. And it seems like he continued to do it. In fact, even in John 1, we see this recorded twice. And it was almost like the rest of his life, every time he see Jesus, guys, there he is. Hey, hey, there he is again. There he he goes. Every chance he had an opportunity to identify him and point to him, he did. And so we see that John was this witness. But even though it was a clear testimony, even though John didn't study, he repeated this many times apparently, from his audience, audience's perspective, because they had already determined to reject testimony, they realized, Jesus is going to realize this isn't the strongest witness either. Now, he's given them lots of data points here that if they kind of put them together, hopefully if one of the dominoes fell, then all of them would support his view. But they're, they're just rejecting it outright. You've, you've met people, right? Like, don't, don't confuse them with the facts. Their minds are already made up. That's these Jewish religious leaders. Like, don't give me the facts. I've already got my mind made up. You're confusing me, you know, kind of deal. And so this is exactly what we're going to say. And so in verse, or what we're going to see. So in verses 34 through 35, 
Jesus is going to recognize that John, this testimony of John, is not his strongest witness to this present audience. He's going to kind of allude to that here in verses 34 through 35. He says, yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So he gives them this human witness, but he also indicates that he's got greater witnesses than him. He's, he's going to kind of move us into that next section where he tells us he's got greater witnesses than John the Baptist. He knows probably how they're going to respond. But at the same time, they couldn't grasp this divine witness, so he gives them a human one. And they're still in the mode of rejection. We're going to see why later on why that's the case, because it's really funny because Jesus is going to get different people on the witness stand, but then he's going to put his audience in the hot seat. It's funny because usually the witness stand is the hot seat. Jesus is going to flip that around here toward the end of our, our section this morning. So man's testimony regarding anything is always inferior to God's testimony regarding the same topic. I mean, I think we would all agree with that. And so he, he recognizes why John's testimony might not be convincing enough to them. You know, at some point, John the Baptist out in the wilderness, dressed like a weirdo, talking like a weirdo, screaming like a weirdo, eating weird bugs, at some point probably didn't rouse up the religious elite. They probably were like, this guy's a little odd, right? So at some point, they, they responded well, and then they started to react negatively. And so I think Jesus is just simply recognizing he's probably not the most convincing witness for his audience, even though he was a divine witness. He was a divine mouthpiece for the Messiah. You might say that Jesus in this way is condescending or stooping down to appeal to them, to give them something that they would respond to. And he did it for a very specific reason. Go back to verse 34 and see where Jesus's heart is here. And he says, yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be what? Saved. See, uh, Jesus's heart here is to approach them in any way possible, through any angle possible, to convince them to trust in him and him alone for salvation. To get out of their mind that he's just some dirty, rotten, stinking sinner that did something wrong on the Sabbath, and he's actually the Messiah that was promised, who came to die for their sins, to solve their entire sin problem. And, and so he's he's working through with the weaknesses of his audience, basically. And he's kind of working through these witnesses in that way. Now, what's really uh, ironic about this whole situation is Jesus's audience, based on this passage and based on what we see elsewhere, they actually initially received John the Baptist's ministry. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, that's wild, but they, they did. But as soon as he started identifying Jesus as the Christ, they were like, ah, no, no more. We're not going out to see this guy anymore. So Jesus kind of alludes to this initial acceptance. The way he kind of words it uh, is interesting. If you go back to verse 35, he says, he was the burning and shining lamp. And then notice what he says, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Interesting. Jesus uses this phrase, he was imperfect. It's the imperfect tense of the Greek. It denotes an ongoing action in the past. He, he was this for a while. He was this shining and burning lamp is, is kind of the way that Jesus is describing him. And so this description by Jesus, the way that he's speaking of him in past tense probably indicates that his ministry is over at this point. When you try to do the timing in the gospel, sometimes it's hard to know, like if one book doesn't mention an event, kind of where it fits with the others, you try to do your best to fit this in. But as best we can tell, John had probably already been arrested by Herod by this point. When Jesus is having this conversation in John 5, uh, John's ministry is, is, for all intents and purposes, done. He's, he's under arrest. He's in prison. It's possible he may have already been beheaded even, that his life was over. We don't really know. It's hard to, to really tell exactly, but that uh, you could make an argument for that. Either way, though, it's likely that Jesus's audience and even some in the crowd that he's speaking to here in John 5 had at one point enjoyed or rejoiced in John's ministry. This is what he says. It's kind of like the idea is like some of y'all were there. Some of you enjoyed this. And you know, I remember uh, a guy told me long ago this, this next point. He said, you know, people generally enjoy watching other people burn. And, <clears throat> and he didn't mean, <clears throat> I mean, anyways, I won't get into that. But I mean, he didn't mean like set yourself on fire and like watch you die. But the idea is that when people are passionate about something, you're kind of interested in that. You know, I, I've kind of shared before, if I, 
if I get a guy show up to my door and he's passionate about selling a vacuum cleaner, man, I'm going to listen to the guy. Man, I just enjoy when people are interested in something, even if it's not something I'm necessarily interested in. There's something about passion and excitement and enjoyment. You're just like, kind of, I mean, I'm intrigued. Why is this guy so pumped about this vacuum cleaner? Then I realize it's just like any other vacuum cleaner. I'm not too excited. And I say, man, have a nice day, but glad you're pumped about it, right? So people like watching people burn. John the Baptist was an incredibly intriguing guy, incredibly passionate guy, incredibly authoritative guy in terms of the truth that he understood and knew and what he was willing to declare, the way he would take on the Pharisees. You kind of read about that in Matthew 5 or 3. People were probably like, man, no one talks to the Pharisees this way. I like this guy. You know, you know how that is, right? And so people were rejoicing in what he said. In his description of John, uh, Jesus actually comes back to an interesting description that the apostle John used of John the Baptist earlier in John 1. And that was that John the Baptist was not the light, but that he used his light to point to the light. Remember that kind of passage in John 1 verses 6 through 8? Uh, it reads this, there was a man sent from John whose name was John. This man came for a witness. Notice again, all these witness terms came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. Remember when we talked about John having his flashlight focused on the spotlight on Jesus Christ, right? That was what he was doing. He was bearing witness of the light. And so this was John's role. This was a human testimony that should have been appealing to Jesus's audience so that they couldn't see his divine witnesses, especially God, the father, he was making these claims. They're like, I don't know about that. This should have been a human testimony that they received. They didn't. And so Jesus now, because of the individual nature of human testimony, the fact that John was just one, that's an argument they probably could have used of Jesus is like, well, John testified to you, where's the two or three witnesses, right? So kind of a weak individual human argument Jesus is going to see. In fact, Jesus is going to say, if you, if you just poke your head real quick in verse 36, but I have greater witness, right? A better you might say witness. We'll kind of get there. This is where Jesus is going to go into the category of providing three additional divine witnesses. Okay. He knows they're not going to believe him about God, the father. He tried to give him John the Baptist. He knows they're not going to believe him about John the Baptist. So now he's going to go through and provide three divine witnesses. The biggest one being, I think the last one, the expert witness, although these are very convincing or could have been very convincing, should have been for them. First, we're going to see Jesus's divine miracle. Uh, his miracles and his works were designed to testify to his identity. Again, he's going to bring up God the Father. But when he brings God the Father back to the witness stand, it's like <clears throat> he leaves him there. And then he turns around to the audience and he starts roasting the audience. And we're, we're going to kind of see, he's going to explain why they won't receive the Father's witness. He's going to kind of turn on the crowd here uh, at the witness stand. And then he's going to give the Old Testament scriptures. And we'll get to that one. Uh, next week. We'll get to the third one next week. But let's look at the first two and, and especially these divine miracles. Let's go to verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So in this case, he's got this greater witness. This uh, and, and that word greater can mean great large in size or extent. Um, in this case, I think we could translate it more convincing, you know, what should be more persuasive. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like when Jesus is healing the paralytic, they drop the paralytic through the roof. Remember that story where they cut a hole in the roof, they drop this guy down. And the first thing Jesus says, he says, um, because he saw their faith, son, your sins are forgiven you, right? And, and then Jesus says a very, very telling question. Or very telling, yeah, very telling question. He asked them, he says, what's more difficult to say? Your sins are forgiven you or take up your bed and walk. You know, and, and what is more difficult to say? It, the more difficult thing is to heal somebody, somebody that's paralyzed. I mean, I could go around all day and, oh yeah, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Man, who cares? There's people on the moon. There's, you know, I mean, I can make up all sorts of stuff, right? I could say all sorts of stuff that you can't verify. You couldn't verify if a guy's sins had been forgiven by somebody saying it. But you know what you could verify? This guy that you've seen around your village who cannot walk, 
who cannot get anywhere, who cannot, has not been able to do it for years. You see his friends literally dig a hole in the roof to lower him down. You know what you can see? When the son of God says, stand up and walk, I can see that. And then guess what it convinces me of? He can forgive sin. And that was the whole point he said that. These signs were designed to do that, these greater extent. He can say the father will testify of me. He can say, John the Baptist testified to me, but here's a greater witness to say, look at what I'm doing. Does that not convince you? And only that, it wasn't like he was just making up miracles to do. He was literally following God the Father's game plan in the Old Testament, doing the exact miracles that they should have been looking for. And so this is why he says it's a greater or more convincing witness. And just like a courtroom setting, you always want to bring your best witnesses, your start witnesses in toward the end, right? You kind of build, you know, these, these defense lawyers, these prosecutors, they build their case. They want to have that slam dunk witness right at the end, right? They want the other side just curling up in the fetal position when they're done with their witnesses, knowing like, oh, we just got burnt. We got taken to the cleaners here. And so this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's going to bring in his best and most convincing witnesses. He's going to bring them in last. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this next phrase, the works which the Father has given to uh, given me to finish the very works that I do, is it's kind of implied, which, which sounds like a Captain Obvious statement, and maybe it is, but it's kind of implied that God the Father had a plan for God the Son's life, that he had, a, had an agenda for him. They had some things that he wanted him to accomplish. By the way, does that ring a bell with any other verse in the Bible that might apply to us directly today? Ephesians 2.10, God has designed you and created you in Christ Jesus for good works that he predetermined that you should walk in them. Very much the same with God the Son. He's got a plan for him. He's got an agenda. But guess what? Unlike us, Jesus didn't deviate from the plan. Jesus kept to the plan. And this is why he can confidently say what he's going to say here. And also at the end of the end of his life, it is finished. John 17, for the work that you gave me, I've completed it, right? With full confidence that he had done it all. And so we see this word finish. It's interesting. So all these works that the father has given me to finish means to complete or to make perfect by reaching the intended goal. See, God, the father had this agenda for Jesus Christ. And this agenda involved certain works that were designed to testify to his identity. And so the question is, what works did he do? What and how did they testify of his identity? I just want to bring out three areas. I think there's more, but I think there's, when you look at the life of Jesus and what he accomplished physically through works, miracles, signs, and just throughout his life, really three areas where he finished the work. He took what God the Father had for him and he finished the work. One area, and this desired outcome of these works that were designed for him is he gave enough evidence of his identity. Part of, I think, the father's agenda was for him to do enough works that the Jewish people could look at him and they could recognize him and they would recognize him as the Messiah. That was the design of these works. Not to make them mad, but to actually soften their heart and to respond and say, this has got to be him. And you're going to see the people as we go through the book of John, there are going to be people around Jesus when he does things. They're going to say, how could anybody else be the, this has got to be the Christ, right? And they're just, they're just wrestling with that because of what they're seeing. And that's what it was designed to do. They were designed to testify of him. Many people got it. Many people did not. The second uh, desired outcome, and we see this in John 17, four is I think he was to live an exemplary life. You know, what happens, and, and think about, let me just go politics for a second. I apologize for that in advance. But what happens when somebody starts rising to the cream of the crop? They start rising in popularity. What does the other side usually do? Do they attack their policies or do they attack their person? That's exactly right. It, goes, it all goes ad hominem attack. Like, well, yeah, this guy, I, I knew a girl he dated in high school and, you know, he was a jerk. He didn't, he didn't pick her up for the prom, you know, and they just start p- pulling stuff out from wherever to, to just annihilate this guy who actually, you know, has probably changed a lot since he was 18, hopefully, and maybe has some good policies, right? It goes ad hominem attack. You know what? Nobody could ever do that with Jesus Christ. 
Nobody could ever do that with Jesus Christ. In fact, at the end of his earthly life, in the upper room, and in the prayer to the Father, known as the high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, I have glorified you on earth. Remember, just think, when you think glorified, think, I have declared your reputation. I'm more interested in what people think about you than me. It's kind of the idea. I have glorified you on the earth and I have finished. Same word we have here in John 5, 36. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Third outcome or third area desired outcome was the complete and ultimate work of redemption. And this is why we rare this bracelet on our hand. This is why we, we want to supply it to you because we want you to go through your life and you're going to have a difficult day. And you're going to have trials come up. And if the only thing that you can remember is, wow, he died for me. He paid it in full. Amen. Right? That's something to rejoice in from now throughout eternity. And that's something to kind of focus on and get our minds back on the Lord uh, in terms of just walking through this life. But Jesus, when he was sent to the cross, he, he basically used this aversion of teleao, which was tetelestai. We all know tetelestai. It's on these bracelets. It's a version of that. He finished the redemptive work. He paid your sin debt in full. And so all of these things, when we talk about the works of Christ designed to declare and testify of his identity, they all kind of come into play here. His miracles, his life of perfect obedience, his work of redemption, his teaching you could throw in there. But all of these things he appeals to and he says, you know what? These are greater witnesses than John the Baptist. This is what he's talking about. All of these things are greater witnesses than John the Baptist. Now, why is this? Now, really quickly, we're going to tie this into his last witness. But all of these works, and this is what's very important to see, are tied into the true expert witness, which is the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to come to that next week. Because these are exactly the works that Jesus had been prophesied that he would do in the Old Testament. In fact, I want you to see an interaction uh, between John, uh, John's disciples and Jesus. John is in prison. He sends to Jesus. This is what Jesus says. Uh, let's read it. Matthew eleven two through 6. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ. See that? What did he heard about? The things Jesus was doing. The very works that were designed to testify of his identity. He sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Now, the, the, the very fact that John the Baptist asked that question is a sermon for another day. I'm not even going to get into that. We'll open a can of worms, and then you're going to be here until 1230. No amens on that one. All right, so I'm going to leave that one alone. So we'll answer that another day. But Jesus answered and said to him, by the way, what's the answer to that question? Yes. That's the answer. But notice the answer that Jesus gives. And he establishes a long line of preachers with this length of, no, I'm just kidding. All right. So he, does, he, he doesn't say, he doesn't say just simply yes. He says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Now, what is he asking John's disciples to do for John? To give testimony. You see? Again, and how many, how many test, how many are testimony? Testifying two. So it meets the legal standard even here. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. And notice what he points him to. This is all Old Testament prediction of the Messiah. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. By the way, how many lepers had been cleansed in Israel up to this point in time? How many Jewish lepers? Zero. How many Gentile lepers? One. We had the story of Naaman. So when the Messiah came in, he's healing not a leper, but lepers, plural. That should have been eye-opening. In fact, it was probably the first time if any of them had gone to the temple like they were supposed to for cleansing and ritual purity reasons after their healing, it's probably the first time the priest had ever seen that. They probably said, man, we're going to, where is that section? Like we, we've never even had to do that before. And they're just looking through the law, trying to find out what they're supposed to do because they've never had to do it before. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. See, Jesus did all of these things throughout his earthly ministry. In fact, John is going to tell us later in his book, in fact, we, we don't even have enough ink to record everything that Jesus did. I mean, that ought to blow our minds. If you're convinced by Jesus, just, just no, you don't even have all the evidence. I mean, there's, there's a ton more they could have added. It's incredible to think about that. 
And so these very works were designed by the Godhead to help and assist those in Jesus' day to be able to confidently identify him as the Messiah. This is why Jesus will say later, listen to this. This is just incredible. John 10, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, though you don't trust me, what should you believe? The works. Why? That you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. See, the works were designed to validate and verify the identity of Messiah and then cause people to say, well, if he's doing these things, it's got to be him. I should probably change my mind about who Jesus is and what he's all about. The problem with the audience in front of Jesus right now in John 5, they would not go for that at all. In fact, the very works that he was doing were infuriating them, not exciting them, infuriating them, causing them to want to kill him, if, as you can read back in verse 18 of John chapter 5. And so the works do the testifying. They bear witness, and, and Jesus uses a present tense. Right now, the works that I'm doing, what work had he just done? He had healed a, a man who was infirmed at the pool of Bethesda. That very work was testifying of who he was. They were using as a cause to condemn him. So they were missing, obviously, the very point. By the way, what's, what's really interesting is later, and I'll bring this up in a second, but in Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts, following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, I want you to notice how he starts his sermon in Acts 2, verse 22. He says, men of Israel, speaking to a lot of the same people who were in the crowd on the day Jesus is talking on John 5, probably some of the same men, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, look at what Peter says, a man attested by God to you. How? By miracles, wonders, and signs, which by the way, God did through him. He's not a charlatan. He's not some crafty magician. The God of the universe did these miracles through him in your midst. And then notice what he says, as you yourselves also know. In other words, you can't even deny it. And this word attested means that God demonstrated or showed proof. He gave evidence of who Jesus was through these very miracles. And so you can see why this could have been a strong witness. This could, should have been strong testimony for Jesus's audience here. It should have been greater than even the testimony of John the Baptist. And then this last phrase here in verse 36 is going to kind of springboard us into the next, the last two verses we're going to look at this morning. And it says, the father has sent me. Okay. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the father has sent me. And the, and the idea is he's caused him to depart for a particular purpose. This is the idea that God actually had an agenda for the son. Uh, again, perfect tense. He sent him into the world at a point in time and the son remained on mission. He was on mission. He was, he was God's representative doing exactly what God the father wanted him to do. And so this leads us to the final witness that we'll look at this morning, this, this second divine witness, where he recalls, I believe, God the Father to the witness stand. And so in verses uh, 37 through 38, we read this. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe Again, perfect tense. God testified concerning him in the past with result of his testimony still standing. The implication is God the Father is not going to change his mind. That's what he's, he's saying here. Uh, he's not going to change his mind about the Son. And again, when we follow the progression of Jesus' arguments, it's very simple. If God the Father sent the Son, then clearly he knew the Son, and clearly he's able to provide adequate testimony about the Son. That, that the son, if the son wasn't doing what God the father designed him and tasked him to do, then he wouldn't give testimony about him. He would, he would clearly call him somebody that was in rebellion or in error or had gone out of the way, but it wasn't that case. So he's test, giving testimony about the ministry of Jesus. Now, one of the things you want to look at here is, is, is in what level had God the Father already given testimony to the Son? In, in, what, in what way has he already testified to the Son? Well, we can look at a couple things just in Jesus' earthly ministry uh, in terms of what he said so far. In fact, just kind of three things. 
One, the, the whole idea that he provided empowerment for Jesus to do these miracles, right? This, is, uh, this was a greater witness he talked about in verse 36. But this was a testimony of God the Father that could have been visible through these miracles in Jesus' day. In fact, it convinced one Jew... If you recall, in John chapter 3, verse 2, the man came to Jesus by night, or this man came to Jesus by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How do you know that, Nicodemus? Just because he said God? Just because he quoted a couple of scriptures? That's, that passes the test for most Christians today. Well, yeah, that's, that's a valid ministry. They said Jesus. <laughs> that ain't always a good measurement. I'm just here to tell you. How did, how did Nicodemus know he was a teacher come from God? Look at what he says. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. See, this was a clear testimony that God the Father was empowering Jesus to do these signs. This is how Nicodemus recognized the source of these signs. A second way that God the Father had testified with Jesus was verbally at his Baptism at his water baptism, we read in Matthew three, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, clearly that testimony was limited to the audience that day or those to whom that audience shared that. But this is again, another example of God, the father giving testimony to the son. And then probably the strongest way. And again, I keep saying, we'll get to that next week. And that's kind of, we're going to leave you on a cliffhanger, right? But next week, you know, it was through the prophetic and predictive testimony recorded in the word of God in the Old Testament as to who the Messiah was, when he would be born and what types of works he would do. And all of this is through the testimony of God, the father. It was just recorded for us in a very objective way. Now, this is going to be, again, Jesus's expert witness that he goes to next week because there's no denying what's written in black and white. It's, it's right there. And all they had to do was investigate a little bit. You know, everybody was like, oh, he couldn't be the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Go find me a, 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 a verse that tells you where the Messiah would be from. It tells you where the Messiah would be born. Not where he's from. I was born in the Philippines, but I would never say I'm from the Philippines. My, my parents were stationed at an Air Force base when my mom was pregnant with me. But I'm not from the Philippines. It's kind of funny growing up. People would find that out. They'd say, are you Filipino? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Just because you're born somewhere doesn't mean you're from somewhere, right? I mean, we understand that concept. But, but, but even the Jewish religious leaders, they never even investigated these things. It's incredible. And so it was all there. And we'll see that that's kind of his strong testimony next week. One of the things that Jesus is going to say here is he's going to make three statements uh, of fact about his audience in their current state of rejection uh, of the testimony. And, and this is what I said earlier. In essence, he's got God the Father on the witness stand, but now he turns around and he puts everyone else on the hot seat. <laughs> everyone else uh, is going to get roasted pretty good. And he's going to basically say that your acceptance or rejection of the testimony sounds like a personal problem for you. That's your problem. It has nothing to do with the quality of witnesses. It has nothing to do with the quality of testimony. It has nothing to do with anything that any of the witnesses have done wrong. You're the one with the problem. And he's going to about to detail that for them here in a second, because their issue is not, again, the quality of the testimony. It's the character of the audience. That's the issue. And Jesus is going to point this out for them. Again, probably not making him very popular with this crowd, right? I don't think Jesus, I think that's long gone out of Jesus' head by this point. I don't think he's trying to win friends and influence. I think he is trying to influence people. He's not trying to win friends though. He's trying to be direct with them. And notice what he first says. He says, you have neither heard his voice at any time. And we'll look at that more closely. This word uh, heard means to hear with attention. It means to hearken or listen to. This is, this describes engaged listening. If you've ever talked to somebody and you can tell that they're not listening to you, it's the opposite of this word, right? And I, parents, be easy on your kids, okay? That, they, they do do this, though. The kids do. You're like, wait a minute, listen to me. Please stop. Just put that down. Let me just, I just got to tell you one thing, and I really need you to hear this, right? This is engaged listening. They, he said, you have neither done it. You have not heard his voice at any time. Now, this is actually... Very, uh, I would say, super telling. Why is it telling? Because who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the very experts in the law of God. These are the Jewish religious elite. They had devoted their entire lives to the study 
of God in the scriptures. And Jesus is basically saying, all your study has had no impact on your understanding. That's probably the worst thing to tell a scholar. You're super educated, but you're dumb. Or you're ignorant, right? How could, how could an educated person be ignorant, right? That's, those are contradicting terms. But in this case, educated people were the most ignorant people in the room, in the audience. They were the most ignorant people. Why? Because they had no understanding. And Jesus is, in effect, saying, you've never heard God. I don't care how much time you've spent in the Bible. I don't care much how many verses you've memorized. I don't know. You can parse Hebrew verbs, understand this stem and that stem and Greek, whatever. You don't understand. And you know what? He's going to say it even more emphatically with, a, with the use of a couple of grammatical keys. Heard here is in the perfect tense. We keep talking about perfect tense. Indicating they've never heard his voice in the past with results continuing. They've never heard him. They just literally have never heard God. And yet they've studied him their entire lives. The second grammatical key we get is this word translated anytime. It means yet ever or no, yet ever or never. Jesus is emphatically saying, you guys have never even heard God. That's why you're rejecting all of these witnesses. This is why you're doing it. Second reason, nor have you seen his form. Seen means to see only with the eyes, not only with the eyes, but also with perception and understanding. Can, again, it reflects this idea of understanding. And the idea is they've never seen him. They've never seen God. They've never seen or, or seen him in person. Now, what have they never seen? Well, it's his form. It's basically his outward appearance. Well, that's, that's not their fault, right? Because we know from the Old Testament, you can't see God and live. That's not what he's talking about. But I think what Jesus is is alluding to is they're looking for this visible proof, right? They're looking for this visible proof of Jesus's identity. He provided it via signs, the fulfillment of God's word. And yet in those things, they didn't see God. They didn't see, quote unquote, the form of God. Now, what's, what's crazy about this is two implications. One, Jesus has seen the form of God because God the Son has been with God the Father since eternity past, right? So that's one implication. But the irony is that they're, they're trying to see God so hard and, and here he is right in front of them. That's what they're missing. And I think Jesus brings that out because in John 1, 14, we read this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared or, or he has made him manifest. And so I think this is, again, it's a, it's a subtle roast to his audience. You know, you're looking for God and I'm standing right here in front of you. I, I am the representation of God in human form and you can't even see me. It's kind of the idea. So he's letting them know that's another reason for their rejection. The last reason is this. You do not have his word abiding in you. And Jesus is saying right now, they don't possess the word of God in an abiding manner. Probably a better way to understand this is to say, you guys aren't thinking biblically. You guys are not aligning your thinking with the word of God. You're not thinking biblically is what he's saying. And so the reason for this is they had not responded to the revelation they had. And this is a very dangerous place, by the way, for anybody to believe, to be unbeliever or believer is rejecting revelation that you have prevents you from understanding further revelation. Do we understand that? Do you know how many times in a, in a believer's life, let me go application here for a second. Do you know how many times in a believer's life that we reject certain areas of truth from the word of God because we think we know better? Because we're not completely convinced that God's process is the right process, that there's something we got to do. Yeah, that was good for them back then, but I got to do this now. You know how many times we reject the word of God because we have learned to justify our actions or to excuse ourselves in the way that we think, act, speak? You know how many people I've met over the years that say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm never going to change. That is, that is a surefire way to stunt your spiritual growth. Because God's in the business of change. God's in the business of bumping your thinking. God is in the business of challenging you and correcting you. He's not too concerned about your feelings. He's, he's more concerned about your fellowship with him. And he's passionately into that. And so many people will just take truth, accept some of it, reject some of it. They think it's minor rejection in their mind, but it's tragic because it's always going to impact future spiritual growth and future spiritual intimacy. Now, for an unbeliever, when they reject truth, 
they're not, they're not even wired for sound. They miss out on the opportunity for further revelation that the one standing in front of them in this case is the very Messiah who would pay the penalty for their sins so that they wouldn't have to. And they missed it because they're getting hung up on something else. They're getting rejecting small truth and something else. Now notice why these three descriptions are true. There's a big, in verse 38, there's a big because there, right? This is, this is why Jesus, what he's saying about this audience is true. Because him, uh, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. The very revelation of God, Jesus Christ himself, is the very things that these leaders would not believe. And so they missed the very testimony, the very thing that was designed to convince them of who Jesus Christ was. They rejected. They rejected it every step of the way. And they had reason to do it. Oh, that's just one human witness. Oh, how do we know you're talking for God? Oh, you're, you're doing those miracles by the power of Satan. And that's what they end up describing. They can't deny the miracles. So they say, yeah, your source is all messed up. You're a charlatan. You're a demon. This is what's going to happen at some point. So again, they had their minds made up. None of these witnesses were going to convince them. And you could argue up until this point in time that Jesus's witness, Jesus's witnesses that he's calling to the witness stand are somewhat speculative. You could say, well, Jesus is just saying that. How do we really know? You know, the skeptics mind. How do we, how would we really know that what Jesus is saying is true? The thing about it, the witness that we're going to look at next week, it's not speculative. It's objective. It was historical. It was in black and white. And there was really one way to interpret it. And Jesus is going to take them on with this last witness, his expert witness. And we'll see how they respond. You know, surely they would receive that, right? Surely they're going to allow the word of God to sit in authority over them. And if they're evaluating something incorrectly, they're going to let the word of God adjust that out, right? You would think so. Do we do that all the time? I, we don't have a very good track record of that either. So we're going to see these, these unsaved Jewish religious leaders also have a bad track record when it comes next week because they're not even going to accept this testimony. And we'll see that as we go forward. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do, I do thank you for this section. It, it's encouraging, I think, as we look at the Lord Jesus to be even more convinced and persuaded that he is who he says he is. He's done what he said he could do and that we can entrust our eternal destiny to the one who died for us and rose again. So we're, we're excited about that. We, we appreciate this section, the fact that he was so just in a heartfelt way convincing or attempting to convince this group that, that he was indeed the promised one. So may we be convinced uh, by, by your word and be convinced by this testimony this morning that we can indeed not only trust Jesus Christ for eternal life, but trust him in this daily life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.